This morning's passage is Genesis 34. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for a as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give you whatever you say to me. Only give the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to him, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter, and we will be gone." Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem, and the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people." When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with a sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Quite a passage, huh? <clears throat> it's a hard passage to read much less or much more so to preach on. It's the kind of chapter that if you come to it in your Bible reading, you might be tempted to skip over it. 
It's the kind of chapter you might be tempted to look away from. I'd like to pretend that the kind of wickedness described here doesn't exist anywhere, much less among the people of God. But you know as well as I do that this kind of evil does exist in this world, both in the Bible and in our lives. And because it is the Word of God, because in the pages of the Bible God chose to include it, we must not look away from it. In fact, we need to look straight at it. We need to fix our eyes upon it that we may, might gain from it all that God means us to get out of it. By doing so, in this passage, by looking directly at the uncomfortable wickedness that is described here, we're going to see it unfold in four scenes. It's like Johanna just read. Here, here are the four scenes. And out of those, four realities of sin. The first scene is the actual defilement of Dinah. In the second, we see Jacob and his sons finding out about it and meeting the defiler and his father. In the third scene, the men of God plan their vengeance and begin to lay their trap. And in the fourth and final scene, we see vengeance executed. What's the point of this? I thought of a whole bunch of ways to try to explain why this is a gift to the church, why a, a passage that is this harsh and contains this kind of wickedness is a gift to us. I didn't come up with one that just blew me away, but, but the short version is this. The sicker you are, the more thankful you are for your healing, right? The more peril that you find yourself in, the more gratitude there is when you're delivered from it. And so it is a gift to the people of God to see our sin down to its deepest core, that we might then be able in turn to praise Christ with all of our hearts. And the point is to see ourselves in this. The nature of the sin committed in this passage is not fundamentally different from the nature of the sin that is in us. And therefore, the cross of Christ gets seen in even greater glory when we see in this a mirror into our own hearts, where we don't look and think, wow, how could someone be that wicked? But instead, we we see in a mirror, wow, that is how bad my sin is? Maybe I never felt it quite that deeply, but this passage helps me to see that it went every bit as deep. And so from that, we see four real-life examples of the biblical principles that our choices can make it easier and harder for people to sin against us. Second, that sin is always, in every form, wicked and evil and destructive. Third, that it is always wicked to use the things of God as instruments of sin. And fourth, we'll see that sin is never the remedy for sin. Let's pray. Let's pray that God would help us to see these things in such a way as to be even more grateful for the cross. And maybe some will see their sin this morning in the proper light that they might run to the cross for the first time. Let's pray that God would, in in this passage, show us the depth of our sin and therein transform us into greater degrees of godliness through trust in Jesus. God, that's our heart. That's our prayer. Help us to see ourselves. There's there's little, if any, righteousness in this passage. Just as there is no righteousness in us apart from Christ. 
Your word tells us that whatever is not from faith is sin. And all sin leads to death. That's our lot. That's what we are born into. We are born your enemies. We are born in rebellion against you and under the death penalty that sin brings. We do not deserve your kindness or your grace. We do not deserve to have your love set upon us. We are unable, your word tells us, to look to you, to trust in you. But your grace comes on us through Christ. It is offered to all who will receive it. God, help us to see in this passage the depth of our sin, that we might turn to Christ and know the fullness of the redemption that he purchased for us on the cross. And thank you for passages like this. They're hard to look at and even harder to internalize, to realize this is us. But as we do, as we do, the cross begins to be seen in us as it truly is. Amazing grace. Please let that happen this morning in increasing measure. And as a result, let us increasingly turn from our sin and from darkness to light and life, to walk in newness of life as we heard the girls being baptized this morning ask us to pray. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Tragically, uh, as you heard, the passage opens with the rape of Dinah one of Jacob and Leah's daughters. Even though it only gets a single verse, it is difficult to imagine a more heinous crime. It is wickedness and evil of the most egregious kind. As the text notes, it was humiliating, and such a thing must not be done. We're still, as we move our way through the chapter, there is no evidence of remorse or even misgiving on the part of her rapist, Shechem, his father, Hammer, or any of their clan. Worse yet, we find that Shechem was a prince of the land. He had the ability to get away with crimes like this because he was the son of the man in charge. Where God gives power to bless and protect, Shechem used his to abuse and harm. And worse of all, Shechem the rapist, then sought to force Dinah to marry him because, the text says, his soul was drawn to her. It it even says that he loved her and spoke tenderly to her and delighted in her. The picture that we're supposed to see in spite of these flowery words, however, is one of love, is not one of love and affection or godly attraction, but of lust and infatuation. To wrongly use your God-given power to do such a vile thing to someone and then to call that love and then to attempt to flatter them and then to use your power again to try to force them to marry you. What utter depravity. It was this evil that lit the fuse of the rest of the chapter. Shechem's sinful actions set into motion all that followed. But we need to see something. That's hard to see. It's hard to see and hard to say something else as well. Before we get to that, we need to notice two other choices that were made, one by Jacob and one by Dinah, that preceded and even in some ways enabled Shechem's wickedness. Now let me be clear. 
Their sins did not invite, cause, or justify his wickedness, Shechem's wickedness. Nothing they did, Jacob or Dinah, could have or could have done would have excused what Shechem did. In saying that and what I'm about to say, I realize there's a there's a very fine, thin line between rightly acknowledging the fact that Jacob and Dinah's choices impacted Dinah's outcome on the one hand, and wrongly implying it this isn't the case, that Dinah deserved what she got on the other. There's a fine line here. But here's the thing, Grace, that the text invites us and requires us, if we read it rightly, to see something. And that is that if we don't acknowledge, we need to acknowledge that apart from the sinful choices of Jacob and Dinah, Dinah would not have been in the position she was in. What am I talking about? First, Jacob and his family, and if you've been with us in Genesis, you know this already, but Jacob and his family were only in the vicinity of Shechem because Jacob failed to fully keep a vow he had made to God to return all the way to Bethel. He had told God that if he were to keep him safe, God told him to leave Bethel, and if he were to keep him safe, he would come all the way back to the the house of God. That's what Bethel means back in chapter 28. The opening of the next chapter, 35, we'll get to next week, confirms this as God finally commanded him, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Not here, where you said you would. It was an unintentional tragedy that Jacob's sin of partial obedience put his daughter in this land among this people and in proximity to Shechem. And yet, Jacob's sin really did endanger unnecessarily his daughter. There's another sin, though, this one by Dinah. We're told that she was drawn to the ungodly women of the land. God had continually warned his people of the dangers of associating with the pagan, their pagan neighbors, their ways, and their gods. Dinah should not have been intrigued by or gone out to the women of the land, but she was, and she did. Dinah's attraction to the world put her in an unnecessarily vulnerable spot. Well, what's the main takeaway from this? What are we meant to read into this? It is not, it is not, as I said earlier, that either of those sins meant that Dinah got what she deserved. That is not the case. On the other end of the spectrum, though, it is also not that if Dinah or Jacob would have walked in perfect righteousness, they would never have experienced harm. That's not the message either. Jacob should have have led his family all the way back to Bethel as he had promised God. And yet, even if he had, Dinah could just as easily have been mistreated in Bethel as she was here. And certainly Dinah should have stayed among her own people and not gone out to, been intrigued by the women of the land as God had prohibited. But even if she had, as we see in other passages in the Bible, Shechem may have snuck in and mistreated her anyway. In this life, we ought to walk in righteousness. But even if we do, we simply cannot avoid the negative effects of sin, our own or that of others. Well, if not those things, if if that's not the takeaway, what is? I, I think this is the best way to say it. While our choices can never force others to act In a certain way, they can go a long way to making certain behaviors easier or harder. What do I mean? For instance, our sin can never force someone else to sin. 
our sins can never force someone else to sin, even though it can make it a lot easier for them to do so. Dads, if you constantly belittle your children, you can't cause them to become bitter. But you're a fool if you're surprised when they do. Likewise, wives, your constant disrespect of your husband can't make them become unloving. But you can make it a lot harder for us to love well. Kids, hanging out with friends who love sin can't make you join them. But we almost always become like the people we hang out with. Watching sexually inappropriate programs on television won't cause anyone in your household, it won't force anyone to engage in sexual immorality, but it sure puts an unnecessary temptation in front of them. And failing to lead your family well like Jacob did or chasing after worldly things like Dinah did cannot cause someone to mistreat you, but it can certainly present them with an opportunity and temptation that otherwise wouldn't they wouldn't have had. Our sin always makes other sin easier. Would you remember that? Our sin always makes more sin easier. Let us therefore be careful not to tempt others to sin or blame others for ours. But grace, by the grace of God, this works the other way too. What's the takeaway for us? It is that our sin always makes other sin easier, but there's another takeaway. Our godly choices, while they cannot make other people walk in godliness, they too can make it easier. I remember well sitting around watching television and one of my college roommates would stand up and say, I'm going to go share my faith with people in the dorms. That didn't force any of the rest of us to join him, but inevitably some of us would. I remember well Kyle working hard to make missions a greater focus at Grace. His choices didn't force us to join him in thinking better about or engaging in or supporting missions, but it sure did and still does make missions easier to do. I remember well being burdened to live a saltier life by reading the biography of Jim Elliott. I remember well the words of Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord and am regularly spurred on to more godly leadership in my home because of it. Often God uses the godly choices of individuals to inspire godly choices in us. And so let us give ourselves to walking in the light that we might grow in it and spread it among others. That's the first scene and the first lesson. Here's the second one. The next part of the story comes concerns the actions of Dinah's father and brothers once they were made aware of this defilement. The text tells us that Jacob, her father, heard first, but waited until his sons, Dinah's brothers, came in from working the fields before deciding what to do. In the meantime, can you, can you, can you believe this? Hamor, Hamor, Shechem's father, came to visit Jacob, seeking to secure Dinah as a wife for his son. What's more, Grace? He proposed that the two clans share women for wives, trade with one another, and cohabitate in the land as allies. He even went on to offer to purchase Dinah like a prostitute, purchase, try to purchase the favor of Jacob and his sons. At some point in this, Dinah's brothers came back to hear the proposal. Can you imagine? <laughs> 
This is the new Dave translation of what you just heard. Hi, I'm Hamar, the ruler of this land and the father of the man who just raped your daughter and sister. My son still actually lusts after her, and so we'd like to pay you for her, that he might have her as his wife and continue to defile her. Not only that, but we'd like to marry all your women. Pretend to be your friends and have you happy with us while we do these things. What do you think? Sound good? That's the essence of this. Are you kidding me? <laughs> what Jacob's sons did next wasn't good on a, a number of levels, but it's not hard to understand why they did what they did. But get this as well. Conversely, this makes what Jacob did, which is to say what he didn't do, almost as impossible to understand. Shechem's actions were atrocious, and their atrocity was greatly amplified by his father's selfish, manipulative, cavalier response. The point of this section is really at the heart of why this whole passage is in the Bible. You think of all the things that happened in Israel, of all the things that happened among the chosen people of God, why include this? This is gross. This is hard to look at. Why this? This passage is at the heart of the answer to that question. Hear this, Grace, because it has every bit as much to do with you and I today as it did them then. It was recorded and given to the Israelites and to us, the people of God, in order to show in unmistakable terms why God prohibited Israel from mingling with the pagans, why God calls us to stay away from sin and not be drawn to it. It is meant to highlight this, Grace, the unwavering reality that sin is always, in every form, in every way, wicked and evil and destructive, even though it doesn't always seem like it at first. If you make a list right now of the sins that are in your life, that are in your heart, I guarantee you're thinking of them on a spectrum. Some you've determined are pretty acceptable. They're, they're okay, they're tolerable, and some are not, and you know that. But what this passage is meant to help us to see is that every sin, all sins, are always only wicked and evil and destructive. And the more that we come to know the holiness of God, the bigness of God, the greatness of God, and see a rebellion in light of that, rather than one another or Shechem, the more this will become apparent to us. Sin can sometimes seem okay, and maybe even good. But that is only because our eyes and hearts are so easily deceived. Grace, sin, in every shape, every size, and every form, is always as wicked as it seems in this passage. It is a grace of God on your life and mine that we can look at the things in this passage and see how wicked and evil they really are. That is a gift to us to be able to look at our own sin and say whatever it looks like, it is this wicked. It is this disgusting. It is this much of a rebellion against God. God included this vile act of Shechem and this ridiculous request from his father to help Jacob and his offspring and you and I see how utterly wicked and destructive sin, all sin is, before God. When God prohibits something, when you read in God's word a prohibition, you might not fully understand why he put that in there. Why? That doesn't seem so bad. But when God prohibits something, 
we are right to draw this passage to our mind. Why is this in here? So that when you see the word of God and what he warns you from, you would draw this passage to mind. We may not fully understand every prohibition, but we can be assured that unmasked, when the mask is taken off of it, all disobedience looks just like this. In this passage, God was graciously pulling back the curtain on sin for his people to see it for what it really is. In this way, this passage is a remarkable gift. We must, then, walk in faith, believing that all sin is truly evil, even if we don't fully understand why, or even if it doesn't feel like it in the moment. Here's the third scene. What would the men of Dinah's family do? How would they respond to the shocking, brazen request of Hamar and Shechem? In short, Jacob did absolutely nothing, while his sons concocted a plan of vengeance through deceit, profanity, and murder. We see opposite sins, one of total abdication and one of righteous anger carried out in unrighteous ways. Jacob remained silent while the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully. So verse 13 says, Verse 14 also tells us that it was their anger at the defilement of their sister that motivated the scheme in in the brothers. The men were indignant and very angry, it says. Again, which stands in stark contrast to the passive indifference of their father Jacob. And yet, to Dinah's defilers, they were deceitful. They, they feigned indifference to the rape of their sister. They pretended, oh, what, what is that? They pretended that their real concern was over the unacceptability of forging relationships with an uncircumcised people. They pretended that the law of their God, rather than the rage in their hearts, was the main obstacle in agreeing to what Hamer had proposed. Verse 14 says, we cannot do this thing, this is the brothers, to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. And in a sense, that was true. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Here's the thing. I mean, you think if you're Shechem and his clan, yeah, <laughs> no thanks. But is their lust was so great. <laughs> Shechem's lust was so great And Hamer's desire to give his son whatever he wanted was so great that they not only agreed to these terms, but it says in verses 18 and 19 that it pleased them to hear this. That's weird. Thus they went back to their clan, relaying the plan, and all were immediately circumcised. Well, here's the thing. As it turns out, Jacob's sons were not the only deceivers. And what's more, Shechem lusted after more than just Dinah. He and his father and the men of their city also lusted after all of the women and possessions of Jacob. They agreed to be circumcised as part of a plan not to share with the people and land and friendship, but as a means of gaining all that Jacob possessed. Verse 23, will not their livestock, they, they pretended to want to be friends, But instead, when left alone, they said, will not their livestock, their property, and all of their beasts be ours? In an attempt to deceive the deceivers then, all who went out of the gate of his city, listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. 
and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of the city. Talk about going all in to fulfill your greed and your lust, right? I mean, that's going all in right there. And I hope that seems ridiculous to you, because it is ridiculous. But I also hope, once again, it is just so easy to read these passages and think, man, I'm so glad I'm not like them. I'm so glad my sin doesn't look like that. I hope you see how ridiculous it is, but I also hope you are wise enough to do an inventory of your own heart. Think about this for a minute, Grace. What ridiculous lengths are you going to right now to satisfy your own greed and your own lusts? Whether it is immediately obvious to you or if it takes some digging, I promise you, if you really look, you will find pieces of this in yourself. Find them quickly and kill them in the power of the Holy Spirit. Once again, this passage is a, is a gift and then it reveals this common temptation to our hearts. We too are doing ridiculous things to satisfy our own greed and lust. Well, on top of all that, Aside from the obvious duplicity of both parties, Jacob and his sons and Hamor and his, this section introduces something else we need to consider quickly. Circumcision was the solemn mark of the covenant that God had made with Abraham, Jacob's grandfather. It was to be a constant visual reminder that Abraham's children were set apart for the nations, from the nations. God was their God, and they were his people. Grace, Jacob, his sons, daughters, his clan, they were meant to be a light to the whole world. They were meant to show the goodness, the prosperity of fellowship with God, of being reconciled with God, of trusting in God and surrendering to him. They were meant to live in such a way that the nations would be drawn to the light. But instead, they join the pagans in their darkness. Grace, for those, if if Jacob and his clan were to do what was right, the nations would see and, and, and flock to this. And then they were to offer circumcision. For those who would submit to God as their God, they were to offer this as a sign of the covenant that they too could be God's people. Instead, again, they join the pagans in their darkness by using circumcision not as a covenant sign and offering it in the light, but as a means of manipulation in the darkness. In doing so, they were profaning something sacred. Deceit and profanity were the tools of the people of God to get vengeance. Again, on the one hand, this might seem like something foreign to us. It might seem like something we would would never do. It's really hard to imagine how you could use circumcision in your (laughs) workplace today or to get something you wanted. And so in that sense, it isn't something we would do. On the other hand, though, the deeper principle is this. It is always wicked to use the things of God as instruments of sin. It is always wicked to use the holy for the profane. And in that sense, you and I are vulnerable. Grace Do you use the eyes that God has given you to look upon darkness? Do you use the hands that God has given you to perform works of evil? Do you use the tongue that God has given you to speak words of destruction? Do you use the feet that God has given you to carry you to wrongdoing? The answer is yes, you do, and so do I. We all do at times, and therefore we too 
are guilty of using the holy for the profane. Look to this passage, therefore, to see. It's obvious to us, right? It's obvious that they were using something holy for something profane. Use the obviousness of this in this passage to look at yourself and see the utter folly of and wickedness of such a choice. Well, here's the last scene. What would become of these plans of deceit and profanity? Which clan of deceivers would come out on top? We see the answer in the final section. Jacob continued to sit passively by while the men of his house, Simeon and Levi in particular, ruthlessly waited for three days. Why? So that these weirdos who had circumcised themselves out of their lust and their greed would be in maximum pain. (laughs) So that they would be most debilitated. They then killed every one of them, all of the men of the city, including Hamor and Shechem. They rescued their sister. They also plundered the city. Verse 28 and 29 says, They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all of their wealth, all of their little ones, and all of their wives, all that was in their houses, they captured and plundered. It doesn't take a great deal of careful thought to recognize that Jacob and his two sons each responded to the sin of Shechem with sin of their own. God would make provision. God God cares about justice. He cares about the vulnerable being protected. God would make provision for crimes such as that which Shechem committed. But the responses of Jacob and his sons were not it. Grace on full display. You can't miss it. If your eyes are open, you cannot miss it. On full display is the simple fact that sin is never the remedy for sin even if it sometimes provides temporary relief. That's because sin never honors God, and it is always, and it always, as we saw earlier, makes even more sin easier. Jacob recognized the second part, that this sin would probably unleash more sin. He recognized that immediately, complaining to his sons, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. There was no doubt in Jacob's mind that the hasty actions of his sons would have negative repercussions of their whole family. The problem is that the possible negative repercussions were more of a concern for Jacob than the rebellion of his sons against God and the defilement of his daughter. The brothers were rightly angry. There's a right anger that needs to take place in the face of this kind of sin. They were rightly angry that their sister had been raped and treated like a prostitute, even as Jacob was wrong in not being angry. But they were both wrong to respond according to their flesh, even though they did so in opposite ways. Again, Grace, this is a mirror to us. It's a window into our own hearts. We see this all the time in our own lives, not the murdering and plundering of whole cities or the raping of people or the passive passivity at the abuse of our children, hopefully, but in the sin of responding to sin with sin. When your brother or sister talks trash, kids, how often do you talk trash back? When they whack you with a toy, how often do you grab the nearest one and hurl it at them? When your coworker gossips about the boss or another coworker, how often do you respond by joining in? 
When someone does something clearly unkind, how often do you react in an equally unkind way? When you find these things stirring up inside of you, when you find yourself wanting to respond to sin with sin, remember this passage. It is a gift to you. You might see the folly and the destructive nature of that and turn from it. So here's my conclusion. As I've tried to make clear, over and over, if you've been in Genesis, you've heard this many times, the narrative passages of the Bible, the stories in the Bible are not meant to teach morality. They are only meant to show the result of the moral choices that the people in the Bible make. This passage doesn't teach us anything done by Jacob and his sons, doesn't teach us that anything done by Jacob and his sons or Hamer and his son is bad. We need the rest of the Bible to know that rape and lying and profanity and murder are wrong. What this passage does is shine a bright light on the ugliness and ridiculousness of the wrongdoing. It helps us to see what it looks like, not in theory, but in practice. It adds detail and depth and color to the outline that are, were given in the commands of God. This is the best illustration I could come up with. In some ways, it's akin to what a gifted painter can do to a simple description of a walk along the North Shore or in the Minnesota woods in the fall. Someone, someone tells you I was walking along the, the North Shore. That gives you one picture. But a talented painter can add all kinds of things that help it get deeper into your heart and in your mind. It is one thing then to say that our choices can make it easier or harder for others to sin. That sin is always wicked and evil and destructive. Those are true things. It's one thing to say that it is always wicked to use the things of God as instruments of sin and that sin is never the remedy of sin. It's one thing to just say those things. There's one kind of grace in hearing them, but it's another thing altogether to see them played out in their true nature, the true ugliness of these things. To see them in the kind of detail this passage provides is another kind of gift to fight sin and to look to Christ. It is a gift from God. Well, of course, none of us have done any of this perfectly, have we? None of us have lived rightly in light of the things on display in this passage or any other passage. It is, therefore, great news indeed. As baptism reminds us, as the testimonies of these girls reminds us, it's great news indeed that our hope is not tied to our obedience. Our hope is not tied to being so fundamentally different from Shechem or Jacob and his sons. Our hope is not tied to the fact that we're so much better than them or that we've, we would never do such things. But that our hope is tied not to our obedience, but to Christ's. Sin is never the remedy for sin. Jesus is. If we will trust in him, he will forgive us of every failure, even if it's worse than what we see in this passage, and empower us for every good work. His death on the cross secured everlasting life and peace for all who call upon his name, not because we're better than the people in this passage, but because we're every bit as bad and could not do it on our own. He loved us such that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This passage shows what it looks like to trust in our own devices. The cross shows us what it looks like to trust in God. Look to him, therefore, and be saved.